I'm pre-gaming. Oh, that's good. Were you drinking fine wine on the podcast? Yeah, why not? I just grilled a fish like on charcoal grill and it was amazing. This is luxury. You you didn't catch it, did you? No, I don't fish. Europe has been great. I had a great day today. I swam in the sea. I ate fish. I wrote a newsletter looking at the sea before I swam. Now I'm going to walk around some little town. I read this week that the great Elon Musk had gone to my alma mater, which I didn't know. It's kind of cool, right? I didn't know you went to an alma mater. Which one is that? Queens University. Is that like an online college? (laughs) actually no it's an esteemed institution in canada so elon went to study in canada but he spent part of his upbringing in canada well not long enough for him to turn nice So one of the things I want to talk about, it's Elon related, sort of adjacent in some ways. Oh, great. I kind of think we're in like the crack up of mass media in some ways. And any sort of totally, totally. crack up is like a slow moving thing, but then in retrospect, it becomes obvious. And really the mass media era itself was a blip in some ways historically. And I think at this point, you see the pressure starting to like fracture mass media. And one of the things that uh, Trump is Elon adjacent, or maybe Elon is Trump adjacent, I don't know. But Trump's skipping, he's skipping the debate on Fox, which I think these debates themselves have always been mass media spectacles. And they were the one time that you could focus all the attention. I think they were sort of overrated in some ways, particularly in the modern era, and they're not made for the modern era. But him just skipping this, to me, beyond people just saying, well, it's just Trump being Trump, I think it says something about the power of mass media. Trey, you wanna, what do you think about that? Am I dumb? If I spent too much time in I think seat? it's huge, actually. First of all, thank you for setting that up. I really did want some commentary from you on our last episode that you didn't participate in. I don't know if you listened to it or not. But if you did, maybe we can get to it at the end because I really want to hear your critique. I never listened to it myself. I couldn't bear it without you, Brian. But on the Trump thing, I think we think of broadcast spectrum as sort of institution, certainly in America. Like to me, it's part of the kind of bedrock of our culture. It was interesting to hear the behind the scenes sort of negotiating to ensure that Trump was part of the debate on Fox. And to have him kind of opt out is obviously partly a function of like a strategic decision and partly a comment on the deteriorating importance of the institution of broadcast media. I think it's really, really material. I think it's a big get, maybe too polarizing for the kind of holistic X story or Twitter story. But like to get a Trump Carlson interview on Twitter is a big deal, I think. Well, yeah. it's a big deal, but it's like, it's a Republican debate. Do you remember, like, they used to have, the, the last time, they have, like, 40 of these things, and there's 12 people on stage and, like, some really random people. I kind of don't blame Trump for not wanting to be part of that, like, goat rodeo. I totally nobody... agree, but if you, what if you went down the list of all of the critical kind of mass market broadcast affairs and started to see them one after the other fall to oh, yeah. next generation media environments? So... 
it started to happen with the Olympics this year when you had to kind of have Peacock to see a lot of what was on the Olympics. It, you could imagine that important public announcements from the president could take place on broadcast and on other places and increasingly like in lots of households with young people, people don't even know how to turn the TV on yeah. or with old people. Like they don't know how to get that signal, but they could, all of them could go to Twitter. All of them could go to, to a large social platform. So I think that for that kind of content, that kind of mass content, a free public social environment will need to exist because it can't be part of a paywalled structure. It's going to fall out of TV. And when it does, it's just another really key moment in the death of that medium, which will for sure happen when sports moves out. Well, that was my, yeah. my question is like, when does the Super Bowl not be on broadcast TV? That's the last domino to fall. And that will truly be, you know. But before that, you'll have second tier award shows and then you'll have the big award oh, yeah. shows. And then, yeah, and increasingly news is not consumed that way. And then, and then small sporting events and then a large one like that. On the Trump thing, you, I feel you guys are reading a lot into it. He's such a unique character and the X situation is so unique that it feels like trying to read what's happening to music by looking at what's happening to Taylor Swift. Like these are very unique individuals and Trump will have his thing and they'll get a bunch of views and then everybody will forget about it. I don't think it's a win for X. I think there's just a lot of virtue signaling happening there. You could do it on YouTube. How could it not be a win for X? Why is it not a win for X? I mean, sure, it sure. YouTube. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be, I don't think it's momentous in that case. I think what we're seeing is that a lot of entities, whether they're famous people or companies are going direct. We've been seeing it for a while and the pandemic accelerated with these big shows like E3, which was like kind of the, the video game version of CES, right? Drawing all the big publishers and they finally realized that they could just like cut a video and put it on YouTube and it would get more audience, more direct. And I think what Trump is doing is the same thing. He's just using a platform which currently just feels like a right-wing talking point in itself. So I don't know if that means a lot. Like, and he's also like, he's somebody that doesn't need debate. Like if we had other candidates, they would need debate and they would need to be on the news, on the channels that people can turn to and YouTube and stuff like that. I don't think we're going to see like DeSantis skip a debate, you know, if he was, if he was. Yeah, know, but he's a challenger. Ahead. So, I mean, I, I say yes and no, because if you look at, it wasn't that long ago we had like the weekly radio address from the presidency. That was still happening, I think, through Obama. Remember, and it's funny because we don't hear it as much now that Biden is president. It was always like a thing for the Washington press corps to say how many days the president hasn't had a news conference, as if his job is to have a news conference. And now we never hear about that. And it's really weird to me, first of all, that we never hear about it. And that's over. I mean, Trump ended it. I think sometimes we sort of actually assign things to Trump that are actually part of a larger shift going on. And I think this is absolutely one of them. I don't think that presidents see the mass media as so critical right now to how they get their message out. And I think that's a tell as far as the power of mass media. Yeah, I mean, it's also no longer, like, what are we saying? TV is dying? Like, it's no longer mass media. Most people don't consume content like this. So it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't want to be on the TV is like the most mass of mass media that I know of. I mean, that's the definition. I mean, right? Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it started the conversation with yeah. Brian pointing out that the cracks are emerging and they mattered less when it wasn't about the primary medium of television. 
and now it's it's so profound and affects so many more people and the budgets are so much bigger and the consequences are bigger as a result. So in a very short period of time, we have real interesting kind of manifestations of it from Disney being at like a major complex crossroads for lots of reasons. One is the change in distribution. So from linear television and then the challenges of streaming. And there's also inside of that potentially fatigue on a lot of their core franchises. But Disney's at a real crossroads and and, and ESPN is not a, is a huge part of that. Even stuff like we talked about in the notes, you guys, like all of these displaced cable stars now looking to figure out what it means to be a solo media entrepreneur in a new environment, whether that's like Don Lemon going on talking to Kara Swisher about his future as an independent media person or to hear Como ranting on Newsmax or even the phenomenon of rich entrepreneurs with their own major media outlet or Carlson Tucker as a right-wing freelancer on what TBD network, his own. Yeah, it's just a, it's a bizarre time. I think that there's other data points. Like I find this fast thing really kind of interesting because it's like, what if free ad streaming TV, basically, right? So it's basically an unencumbered cable box. Anybody that can package a few hundred hours of free television can package it around a thing, a theme and distribute it on one of the fast distributors like Pluto or Tubi or Amazon Fire or Samsung TV. It's pre-installed on TV. Well, everybody will look for distribution advantage, like, right, so you you, you could have it pre-installed on Samsung. Amazon does it with the Fire Stick. Now, you can grab a Fire Stick and basically you have a cable box with all the channels on there, and all of them are eat-what-you-kill smaller businesses meaning your distribution is constrained by all the things that the internet's constrained by, like how many people are going to seek out your content. And so you've got hundreds of free ad-supported channels on Fast, and they're now distributed in all these platforms. Those will need to consolidate. But what's more interesting, I think, underneath of the Fast one is, while the cracks are showing in cable television, we have major cultural events moving off of television or certainly being challenged by other mediums. We also have TV kind of re-emerging as this free thing off of the cable box. And the consequences are always really quite far-reaching because TV in a fast environment doesn't become the same star machine that it used to be. Like the budgets are smaller. It's way more fragmented from a viewing perspective. It's hard to be Don Lemon, meaning like you don't become a national public figure because you're an evening host of a news network. It's a very, very interesting time. I'll be interested to see if Don Lemon can be as big of a star as Don Lemon versus CNN Don Lemon. And I think you'll end up finding like who are the quote unquote real stars and who were drafting off of the brands that they were part of, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I think the jury is still out with with Tucker Carlson, honestly. Like Fox is doing fine post Tucker Carlson. And I don't know if he is going to be another Bill O'Reilly or if he can pull this off as Tucker. The Fox Halo is still very big, but I think that'll be a big test. We actually, one of the other issues that I wanted to discuss that had brought up, we actually got a, a reader request for this, or a listener request, what am I saying? Hmm. And it was, for the next People vs. Algo, you guys should dissect this deal. Very Hail Mary. And it was the Arena Group deal with Five, five Hour Energy guy. They, entrepreneur behind those five-hour energy what are they drinks are they capsules what are they they like zins 
Mm-hmm. I don't even know what it is. I just see it at the like checkout. Zins, zins in a bottle. Zins in a bottle. I don't know if you went through the, the deal structure. It's an unbelievably complex and it totally fits with the arena group. And the and idea- you give us a kind of headline? Yeah, basically they, they did a very complex deal for the guy from 5-Hour Energy to mostly take control of the company in exchange for like ad commitments. And it's still an agreement in principle. And Arena Group owns like assets, including Sports Illustrated, which when I was growing up, at least, was a major marquee brand. And now it is going to be controlled by Five Hour Energy Guy to like hawk supplements. So full disclosure on a lot of this. So I, I know a little bit about it and I have spoken to people at the Arena Group. And also to be clear, the Arena Group is a kind of living vestige of a company that Alex and I used to, to work at oh, called really? Same Media. Wait, that's so the, like Say is still in this? Yeah, Say Media's platform called Tempest became the kind of CMS content management ballast inside of Arena Group. Many of the people that were at Say Media are, including the CTO, is at Arena Group. Arena's run by Ross Levinson, who's a, a friend and a person that was briefly flirting with being the CEO of Yahoo, as you guys know. There's a bunch of other folks at, at the Arena Group that we know. So I can know that. This is, yeah, it is and Arena Group does not own Sports Illustrated. Arena Group rents Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated is actually owned by Authentic Brands Group. Well, Which it's is, like they own the, like, they hawk it out, like, but I mean, they operate Sports Illustrated. They operate it. And for the record, I was looking at it today. Sports Illustrated, on the count of like search execution, has done really, really well in building their audience. So, so good on them. The deal included an ad commitment and $50 million injection into the company, mostly to reduce debt at the Arena Group. And there's some other primary preferred shareholding that was part of it. Needless to say, it was a fairly small amount of money. But what was interesting about it? Cash investment of 50 million, common equity, 25 million, preferred stock, 25 million. Okay, so so this guy, I can't remember his name, Brian, maybe you have it at your fingertips, the gentleman that created 5-Hour Energy that bought the company. It's kind of interesting. I had read or had been told about the sort of incredible insights around the creation of 5-Hour itself, which was like, if there's like a peppy, uplifting, herbal, whatever, energy drink, don't compete in the fridge where it's sort of refreshment plus energy. Compete on, like, go to where they're not. Just put it in a small bottle. It's not about refreshment. It's just about energy. And get on the counter at the gas station and at Walmart which was really, really interesting. The other thing is that anybody that made any claim to X-hour energy was sued into oblivion. The gentleman's from Detroit. Benoit Barkovin. And he was interviewed. I saw this interview with him this morning, and he made these kind of far-reaching statements about all the middlemen in the ad world, how media companies don't care about their advertisers and they slice and dice their inventory and why can't it be more like the old days when there were soap operas brought to you by one sponsor but his real point is well his his real point is the programmatic sort of industrial complex is madness it's created sub subpar experiences in media he's like I'm not a media guy, but I know simple opportunities when I see them. Media needs to sell shit. I make products and I sell them. Media is a middle person in that equation. I want to own media so I can sell my products. And I think I can create a better experience as a result. 
What's interesting as well is he created a bunch of kind of cheap and cheerful local television stations and to support them, a cheap national news and sports network that just runs kind of endless clips like 1010 News. So the the team at Arena is going to take over that broadcast business and then they're going to have their digital business and the whole thing was done for a, a small amount of money. But the real premise underneath all of it, or at least according to this interview, is we need to monetize media differently. And, and I'm going to plaster the thing with five-hour energy ads. I mean, it's kind of depressing. It's fascinating. It's like, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, I guess, but it's like, it, do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when the direct marketing industry took over like the advertising industry and like everyone in the ad industry w wanted it to be about the glamour of the shoots and stuff like this, but it was all about the, the direct marketing guys like coming in and taking over. I mean, this is direct marketing taking over. When you go to five hour energies, Wikipedia page, it's like ingredients, history, legal issues. That's always when you know you have a good Wikipedia page. <laughs> Controversies. <laughs> First of all, Troy, I didn't know they still own the Tempest template. We worked very closely on that Tempest platform. That brought me back. I mean, he's got a point, right? Like programmatic advertising is, is a hellhole. Might as well do it. And it looks like, you know, I was looking at the history of MTV. And if you look at what happened to MTV and how quickly it happened, that's what seems to be happening to other media industries now. What MTV had with music and CNN had with news and potentially said, like Sports Illustrated had with sports, that's being taken from them. You know, the value has gone down, so it means that the advertiser can become the owner or whatever deal means. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, to me, again, like on paper, sure. I mean, we, we heard about this content and commerce stuff. I mean, you guys talked about the Barstool stuff last, last week. I'm sorry I missed that. And the question is whether, whether it works, right? Can men's journal or the, the husk of it, whatever it becomes, and whether it's at the SEO glue factory, I know you hate that term, Troy, or not, does this stuff like actually move these energy shots or whatever the same way as if you put them at the counter? I don't know if that's actually been proven yet. I mean, maybe, maybe Manoy knows. It just, to me, it's like one depressing future for media is being the front operation for some energy drink entrepreneur with legal issues as his number three on his, his Wikipedia page. I mean, it's not glamorous, that's for sure. Well, it's mostly him suing people that were calling things X hour energy. Okay. No, it's not a glamorous product, but I, I think at some point, like just investing or buying the company rather than buying the actual audience for, you know, once the value of these companies continues to drop, right? It makes more sense to just buy the outlet or make a different structure, a different type of deal. That makes perfect sense. We're going to see more and more of these things. I do think you'll see more of these instances of going around the middleman and just owning the media, particularly as just the prices keep falling and that will make it very attractive to do. Whether these entities can operate media businesses or want to, I think is an open question. I think there's a lot of opportunity there, but I, I wonder about whether they truly want to deal with the realities of operating a media business. We saw this with Penn and Barstool. Penn didn't want the headaches. And it didn't work as well as they thought it was going to work, clearly. I mean, just doing a straight licensing deal from ESPN was better than dealing with the headaches of Dave Portnoy and quote-unquote authentic content. Mm -hmm. It's wild how that thing ended up just selling for a dollar. Like, I mean, that was, that was a massive acquisition. Didn't they get any value out of that? 
it always surprises me how badly these deals can go and, and how long people can get it, you know? There's one, I won't say because it hasn't been announced and the person told me in confidence. There's one of these deals. Well, that's where you break the news, Brian. That's being, well, I told him, I told him I wouldn't. I'm not in the, I'm not like the reporter, reporter anymore. This person basically told me that when you're within one of these companies, that media is not their business. Once your sponsor leaves or the person who thought it was a great idea or there's an acquisition that happens, guess what? You get cut. They like they lose interest in it. So if you're operating a media business and you want like an exit, I mean, we've seen like in B2B, this is happening. Like HubSpot bought the hustle and it's happened in, in a few other instances. And it makes a lot of sense on paper. I think HubSpot is different because I think they're really committed to, to content across a bunch of different things. They're building a podcast network and all kinds of different things. This is not part of an ad deal. Although I am speaking at the HubSpot inbound conference on September 9th in Boston. That is Here true, we actually. Go. <laughs> no, but it's not, it's not part of an ad deal. It's just friends and family. Maybe it'll lead to an ad deal. I hope so. Brian, I, I realize Tori and I are very much aware that none of the ad reads that you do are part of an ad deal. Because <laughs> we have... We we keep hearing them. But Did I tell you about this Blueconic webinar? That's I'm the doing? loophole. I usually hate webinars, and I'm doing this Blueconic like webinar about generative AI and the impact it's going to have like on publishing. And everyone should do it. We'll leave we'll leave it. In, we'll just we'll leave a little link in the in the show notes just in case anyone what, really what's, wants to join. What's the? I hate the term webinar. Anyway, what were you, you saying about media being a you, tough business? So Speaking it, of it being a tough business, Jimmy Spanfeller, who's become like the pain sponge for oh digital media. I don't know whether he sort of revels in it or not, but he certainly doesn't get a lot of love in the, in the press about his company or his management style. I can't think of a but, worse fit for like the the relic, like whatever remained of the dead spin gawker sort of ethos than Jim. I just cannot think of a worse like marriage. Yeah. than that. And it's it's going pretty much as I would expect. It came up again in our notes because there was a time when measurement of editorial productivity, be it quantity, traffic, or engagement, or maybe subscription sort of monetization power, was a thing that we all aspired to do, right? Like it was a big part of the kind of next generation quantification of media and digital editorial strategy. And Jim got lambasted for that this week. Now, it may be how he did it as opposed to just measuring it, but I thought it was notable that he was getting publicly ridiculed by the union or by the departing editor of Jezebel for like treating content talent like they were expendable contributing units of, of editorial function. Jesus, that was awkward. Did you have page view quotas for? I mean, journals? we had traffic goals for sure. We had traffic goals. Oh, goals. Yeah. You could break it down. Like you might say that site X was meant to hit 30 million uniques this month. How are you doing against your goal? And then an editor would sort of take that goal and probably figure out how to break it down among the team. I think there's a difference between having a growth goal and ranking the entire editorial team, but I'm not against it. I mean, I think having a, a sort of a leaderboard that shows multiple metrics against an editor, you've done that before, Brian. No, I'm so. against it. I'm totally against it. 100% against it. So you've never done it? Nope. Nope. Don't think it works. Think it's stupid. I think Did someone's productivity... Did someone's productivity ever factor into their of course it success? Is, I know. I, I I would know who who is contributing the most to and because people have different goals and people have different they bring different things to the table, whether it's driving subscriptions or driving attention or 
at least in the business that that we had, it was about influence. And that was totally different. If like I for instance, I had someone, he writes for CNN now. He's he's great. He was really great at doing trending viral stuff, like five ads that failed and all this stuff like this. And it served a total purpose, but the purpose was a very top of the funnel purpose. And it was very different than someone who, you know, like a Tim Peterson who was going like super narrow and deep into like programmatic ad issues. That was never going to have nearly the number of eyeballs on it. Of course not. Right. But that's fine. You can have different goals for different roles. Yeah. Are you like, saying, Brian, that, that you want to run a company where people just understand intuitively how well people are doing rather than a, assigning a number to them? Kind of, number. yeah. I mean, it's kind of like like you talk it's, about like with design and like you can A/B test like forever, but like ultimately you have to make like a judgment call. And I always found that people hid behind agree. numbers to not make judgment calls. These types of incentives also create all sorts of like the wrong yeah. behavior. So, for instance, so it's I like, used to run you're, into you're, you're, you're objecting your responsibility as a. What if it didn't? Okay, so let me just... Why can't creative people have goals? Okay, let me just finish this thing. So I used to run into, in the, the men's room, Claudia Sensed, who's now running Bild in, in Germany. But he was at BI, and Axel Springer brought him over to get BI into shape with a subscription program. And he had a very simple thing. He said, your stuff either converts into subscriptions or it doesn't convert. And everyone was held to quote-unquote goals, which are quotas, just by a different name. And... What that led to, what I noticed was, I knew when people were short on their goals because pretty soon it became 50 CMOs to watch. And I used to send them emails and be like, half these people are not CMOs because they knew that they would convert into like the last click attribution. These things get gamed and it impacts your product. And if subscriptions are your goal, it's a bundle that you want people subscribing to, not like, oh, I need access to this one piece of content and then I'm going to like churn. I bet it like threw their business into. Hey, so ain't nobody gonna disagree with you guys when you take when you take the high road on this high road. And I, well, when you're like, well, we uh -oh, shouldn't Daddy's be measuring here. this. There's lots of ways to do it. No, no, but I think it's important like, to present I'll, I'll, the other I'll side. I'll let you finish. I, I'll let you finish. I didn't even I got a chance to present. That's very gracious you of you. So then you then have to switch over and say. I'm the guy running the business. I'm stuck in programmatic impression hell. My business only functions to the extent that we generate page views and ad impressions. Maybe bad on me, oh, I should have a subscription business or I should fold it in or whatever, but that's my reality. So input, output. So I've got to get my hands around how much I spend to create content and how it makes me money because I got some private equity guy breathing down my neck. This is my last live my last go at it, and I got to make some money here. So I'm going to do the only thing I know how to do, which is measure productivity of the editorial team and hold them to account on it, because it's a simple way of managing that resource. Now you might say, well, if you hire, if you created a better environment, you hired better people, and people felt like they had agency, they could manage, and we created a nicer place to work. We could create a better editorial environment, and it, all the good things would follow. But you can see why it happens. And, you know, I think pretty much every organization that went through a kind of ad-driven editorial push had some kind of quantitative goal for their content creators. So I think Jim got caught on the wrong side of this and it feels like, oh my God, awful. He's chaining them to the desk. But like... I don't know who Jim is. I don't care. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I think like businesses have goals, right? 
And it's absolutely up to leadership and the executive team to worry about those goals and be held accountable for hitting them. The problem becomes when you start putting numerical kind of targets to people's creative output, and it is all creative output, and then incentivize them to try to, to hit those targets. And I think that's just lazy leadership. It's like saying, okay, so I need to generate $3 million right. in business. You win. You win. you win the argument. I, I was playing a game with you guys. You win, Alex. It's Good. an abdication uh, of, of actually doing No, it's an abdication. I don't, like, I don't I want to win. I think it's, guys, it's no, an interesting... I think, I think you're right. I'm not going to disagree with you. You're I totally took last right. week off. I want to win. By the way, this has been like a big... I have been having a lot of conversations online. It's pretty fresh to me about the shifts that Airbnb has done around product management and how... There was some talk about how they, they completely eradicated that function from the company. And the, the misunderstanding there is that the company moved from being very metrics driven to being much more about building a hypothesis and trying to do good work. And people have become really lazy with data. Data is so exciting because you can just say, yeah, turn one number into five numbers, give that to five managers. And those managers turn those five numbers into 10 numbers, right? And then all of a sudden, moving a margin by 5% becomes somebody 100% and nobody's doing any good work. And a lot of these businesses, including media businesses that are dying today, are dying because of that mentality. Yeah, I am 100% with you, Alex. That's why I stay in a hotel. They optimize themselves into like irrelevance. That's the that's what happens. If you just follow the data, I remember having this, I, I'm sorry if I repeated this on this, but I remember having one of these social dashboard companies, like whatever, it was a it was a call or something, and they showed me that you can see what's trending on Facebook, and then you can quickly assign a story, and that will generate like this many page views. And you can track it all, and I'm like, but doesn't everyone else have the same dashboard? Like, and won't they be everyone. doing the same thing? And then won't this brand be the same fucking thing out there? Excuse me, I had someone complain about the F word, but won't this yeah. be like the same thing everyone's doing? Was it your mom again? Tell her to cool it. Come on. <laughs> How many people do you think are going to look at the success of the Barbie movie and say what we need is more toy-based movies rather than saying you rather than seeing what actually works for that movie? IP-based brands. Yeah. And this is like the, the complete disconnect between oftentimes people making the decisions and the people actually doing the work. Can I call them creative people? They could be coders, writers, whatever the fuck. Like the hell. I think we should call these folks out for it because they're tanking businesses. It's bad for business. I think judicious use of the f bomb is extremely effective, Alex. Yeah, but it has to be judicious. I don't know if this was judicious, though. You know, I'm, it's I'm, the, the gratuitous yeah. judicious. Yeah, it's a, it's a continuum. And it's when it's used as a as a word splitter that I think you've gone too far. Like in yeah. fucking credible. Yeah. No, you don't need to do that. Incredible yeah, work. It does. English is my second language, so as you say, I use it as a crux. Is that your like, fourth not language? Seven. <laughs> I speak three languages. Two of them well. Mm. Pig Latin. What else? Do you speak Saskatchewan? JavaScript. I do have a Canadian accent at times. If I'm drinking, yeah. I get it. Or if I'm being incredibly dismissive, I get it. Anyway, Troy, it's very unsatisfying that you just gave in. Did you just like run out of nicotine or something? Or no, I popped you need a, a coffee? Well, no, you guys are right. I, I think that... So I think this actually goes, though, to Troy, what you were saying, like that talent going... Talent, I hate the word talent, but it, it applies. Going independent, to me, it's just like it's a doom loop, right? So there's so many pressures on the media business that the middle managers are going to get crunched down and then it's going to become more metrics driven and the output's going to get more bland and it's just the doom loop. And then you're going to lose talent that now has way 
has other options. I wouldn't say way more, but like has other options that give them more freedom to, I wrote about like the independent path. I think more people are going to take the independent path either by choice or more likely because they're going to be forced to take the independent path. Like whether you like it or not, like you might. Well, it's all about force and and it's just, it's going to be inelegant because quite frankly, I don't think the world needs, I mean, Don Lemon may be a very sweet guy and all that. But unless he can do stand-up or really have a valued and kind of independent point of view that people really want to hear and want to be part of, then I, I think it's extremely difficult for the world to say we need Don These Lennon. guys are dead in the water. And here's the thing. Remember when, I mean, this is maybe not a terrific example, but remember these sort of aspirations of Yahoo to bring talent into the web? The collision of like Katie Couric, Katie Couric. with Yahoo News. Oh, yeah. And it was just a total... Yeah, it's like a total disaster. They paid her a couple million bucks a year to do some kind of video, like ad. You know, Wait, was this the Marissa, Marissa Mayer? Like, where she was like wearing Yeah, yeah, she did it in a number of verticals. Well, she did that with someone else. But yeah, she, yeah, that was part of the strategy. And it didn't go well because we don't need the same kind of... And when uh, with interviewing sort of approach and talent on a website, no one's going to watch it. And when Katie Couric ultimately decided that her voice or her talents would be better kind of manifested in a newsletter strategy. It had a moment of popularity that's subsequently waned. I don't know why, but I think it's really, really hard. And I think actually in the shift, Tucker Carlson will do will do well. I wonder because, like, be honest with you. I think all of these folks outside of the networks that they they're so broadly aligned that people like Don Lemon are dead in their water. Like, yeah, on his own, uh, he doesn't bring a ton of value. So I think you know? the type of talent matters. Like the type of talent that I think Don Lemon has is probably dead in the water because like, think about it. Like I listened to one of the, like an NPR podcast, quote unquote podcast, right? And it's so strange to listen to like NPR podcasts versus like other podcasts because they're so fake and they're cosplaying conversation. And it was interesting to listen to it because their approach is radio and they're trying to cosplay podcasts with with radio talent and the radio production. And after the show, they talk about like the eight different people that were part of the making. And it just comes across as phony. It reminds me of like why late night TV is gone. Those phony stories, like that kind of talent and that kind of approach just doesn't fit anymore. And so I think that's the problem is it's not that the talent, they're just mismatched to where I think media broadly is going. Yeah, probably. I do think NPR does do a pretty good job sometimes. I think their, their daily podcast is generally pretty good. But I see what you mean. And one of the people that managed to do it is Conan, right? He managed to move into this independent realm with a very successful podcast. But I think he was always someone that was more interesting individually than a lot of these late night hosts or people like Don Lemon. And so some people are going to make it and some aren't. I don't think like the American news media has bred a lot of really deeply interesting people. Like if you actually hear interviews with yeah. them, they're pretty. But, but if you could buy stock right? in someone, forget about like your personal proclivities. Would it be like Scott Galloway or Chris Cuomo? I would put it on Galloway like every day. You got to be kidding me! I don't think Chris Cuomo is like made for this yeah. this era. Although he started so, ranting, that this sounds week. like a terrible choice. Yeah, and they, in that choice, I would pick Scott for sure who commented this week that the left need to take back a reverence, which I thought was kind of cool. And that what does that mean? What that means is that people broadly want to feel okay to engage in sort of off color commentary yeah. and humor because it makes us laugh. 
and they want permission to do it. And if that becomes the thing that the kind of broadly that is considered woke or a part of the right wing is okay when you kind of make fun and say stupid shit and are irreverent and liberals are against that, then that's not good for the left. And so I think that's the, really the point he was making and that their decision to have Scott sometimes be kind of anti-woke or inflammatory and have Kara kind of swat him down is a strategic decision to create some kind of casting and light conflict, kind of brother-sister conflict on the show. So his, yeah, jokes, I wish. you know, his, his goofy humor and his CD jokes and all that shit. And then him sometimes yeah. kind of like taking the other side is strategic on the podcast. And I think that's probably true. I think Scott's this a little bit of typecasting, but I think it makes for good entertainment. I think that's probably true. I think people should feel the courage to be more reverent. Scott's not very funny. It's objective. But it's amazing that, you know, I mean. I get a similar sense in that Elon, like these, there's like a, a sense of machismo about being manly and having to be funny. And Elon and Scott Galloway, like, are desperately trying to be funny. And I think they're desperately not. Yeah, funny. I think it's funny when. Yeah, you in a bathing suit at Burning Man, like a Speedo, that's funny. And you Me? being like, yeah, your full self on the podcast, that's great. You should do that. You should do that you, more. In a, in a bathing suit? Like in a Speedo? Well, we should do this video. I mean, <laughs> in that case. You're giving, in, you're giving too much away, bro. I think what he's saying is like, he, nobody likes wet blankets. And like, we got into this like safetyism and like wet blanket yeah. sort of. The Atlantic has finally moved yeah. away from that. It's kind of like I joke about the New York Times war on summer. I mean, it's like, give me a break. It's summer. Like, why are you keep, keep going on and on about how awful it is to travel somewhere or lines or how bugs are terrible or there's risk out there and stuff? And like, at some point, it just becomes too much. And I think that's probably, I didn't hear his entire rant, but that's probably what he's getting at. And like, you need to, yeah, you need to be likable. And I think in, in media these days, I don't know if it's likable, I say it's relatable. I think when you're moving from like institutional affinity to human affinity and human affinity powers in a lot of institutional affinity these days, you have to be relatable to people. There's no more of this top-down stuff where it's like, you need to be scared of this. You need to be scared of this. This person's terrible. These people are saying bad things. This is not okay. And that gets like really, that grinds, I think that grinds a lot of people down. And I can see that as a very valid point for me. Well put. I'm not voting for DeSantis, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was a good discussion. <laughs> He's too goofy to be president beyond the other things. Alex, you got any other Trump is funny. Involved? By the way, do, do you think Trump is funny? Yeah, he's funny. Okay, I think yeah, funny. he is funny. Okay, he's We can agree on that. Guy's funny. But you know, he's funny. He's funny. I don't know. I, there was a kid at school, at my school, that was like three years older than everyone else because he kept, kept like behind. He was just a brute and he was so funny and it was hard to see how much of it was on purpose. A lot of it wasn't. He was just like a disaster to watch. And it was just the most entertaining thing. And I feel like Trump gives out that same energy, except, you know, he's in power. His label for people's are, are funny. Like low energy Jeb. That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Like, did you see this? Did we talk about Bobby Altoff? Yeah. No, what's that? Like she interviewed Drake. The like, podcaster. She, incredibly yeah, she Drake. Yeah. Oh, and and uh, my favorite shark. But she's like, she's funny because you don't know if this is like, if this is real or is this not? Is this like, it's very strange. And oh, there needs to be more of that out there. That's my hope for media. Yeah, it's very dead bad. Like, I think the kids are all right, man. I think everybody's like kind of wrapping them themselves up like everyone's too afraid to say anything but people are, are fine 
Just, I think what sometimes we get this confused with is like, Sam Harris had a great little like 13 minute podcast where he talks about being an asshole. And the fact is that Trump is an asshole. And even when called out as that, both him and his fans like brush it off because that's what they like about him. And my worry would be sometimes people read into things that people say, like what you know, Scott Galloway will say is like, well, it's our turn to be assholes. The same way people read the Steve Jobs biography and said, okay, to be successful, I need to be an asshole. And I think you can be irreverent and you can say what you need to say without being an asshole. It's like that guy, Caleb, the guy from Barstool, Caleb Presley. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? The interviewer? No, I don't no. know. He was an ex-quarterback. He has a mustache, kind of a mullet. Hilarious. Hilarious kind of deadpan interviews. He did a gray one with Post Malone where he also has a sidekick that doesn't say anything. This kind of fat guy who, when Post Malone came on, had written on his face, all over his face with a marker and just sat there, like pretending it was tattooed up like Post Malone. I mean, you should watch this guy. I gotta He's check hilarious. it out. I don't think you're allowed to say fat guy, though. <laughs> just on the side. <laughs> no, because I, I, post, I posted some screenshot on Instagram of, I, I'm in this like food sort of thing and, and there's an Italian chef. He's like, he's a pretty big guy. And he was like, meatballs are a language. And <laughs> I took a screenshot and I was like, this guy's fluent. And I got like a DM from someone who's like, I'm not offended, but I think you should delete this. I was like, give me a break. I was like, if, if I get canceled over making a joke about some guy saying like meatballs are a language, like I'll go down like hmm. happily. <laughs> I did barely more than that and got canceled. So there you go. This yeah, is the independent yeah. path. I am not going to, I'm not going to delete the meatballs are a language tweet. No, Sorry, no. everyone. All right. Well, all right. Great to see you guys as the summer rolls on. What, do we have a, do we have a good product? We do. And it, it's not like water or anything. Yes. This is in praise of the uniform. And what I've been noticing is, and I know Alex is a fan of this because he told me as much, but in the summer, and a little bit of this is an homage to my father, I like to wear sort of short, short, OP corduroy shorts, like board shorts. Okay. And I have them in every color. Yeah. I can. Wow. These, these kind? Yeah, yeah. And they're terrific. They're not quite magnums. They're at least discreet. Yeah. So you wear these with, uh, and I have basically every color of Lacoste shirt available. And so I can mix and match. I can dress like a like an eggplant, all purple. I can go out more green. I can mix with contrasting colors. And so I love the uniform. Don't have to think. Know what I'm going to wear. Kind of stock the closet appropriately. So my good product this week is is really the this quarter this particular corduroy board shirt. OP doesn't make them anymore. These are made by a company called Hammies, and they're amazing. But it's really about the uniform, playing with the uniform as a kind of branded personal expression. Hmm. That's like you wearing all black, Alex. You wearing your like I don't know whatever Arcteryx outfit or whatever you wear. The uh, it's not Arcteryx. I was listening to the Rick Rubin book because I don't read. He spoke about simplifying your life uh, and that a lot of artists like this idea of the uniform and even Einstein wore the same gray suit. And I think it was Eric Satie or somebody like that who had like an outfit for each day of the week. And it got me thinking is like every time you can remove yourself some decision, but then still feel like you're looking good, you're, kind of, you're, you're winning. That yeah. type of structure is important. Although some people are very good at yeah. being... Elizabeth Holmes did that. She did. Yeah, she just copied jobs. Well, right? she had to do the frauding, so she needed to like put aside some things. I've people who, who are really good at building outfits on the fly who always look like 
So the design team at Airbnb were like some of the best dressed people I've ever met. Everybody dressed so well and everybody had so many different outfits and systems and stuff like that. I always felt like a little underwhelmed by my ability to do that. So I think like just simplifying and getting just very monotone. It's like the thing, like if you want to get compliments, wear a suit, you know, (laughs) it's the easiest thing to put on, right? Like it's that, it's, I don't know if you watched a bear, but he goes like, I wear suits now. And there's a transition from, from that character cousin from a deadbeat into somebody who's like pretty cool. And that looks good. That's a uniform. I'm all for it. But I always try to be more creative in my life, and I don't think I'm good at it yet. So okay. I might go there's, back to the uniform. There's time. There's time. So this was good. I'm glad you came back, Brian. It's yeah. real nice. Yeah, of course. Next week from Belgrade. Wow, this is a long trip. Are you ever back stateside? Yeah, no, it's going to be a month. We're leaving. We're going to come back at the end of the month. It's been great. Really like Croatia. Always liked Serbia. My good product from here, if I could just say, is Blitva, which is a this potato and Swiss char it's a very Dalmatian Istrian coast. I don't think it's a Dalmatian dish. Dalmatian like the dog? Well, the Dalmatian coast. Yeah, that's what I got. Is it just like is it spotted? No, it's not spotted. It's, I mean, that's just like the Dalmatian coast. I think it's I don't know if it's Istrian. There's Istria, which is in north, and then Dalmatia, which is south. But it's an amazing you get it with every single fish dish. And so I was obsessed with making it. The first one was not so good, but I nailed it. I thought you were eating dog, and I'm glad. No, I'm not were. eating dog. Um, eating fish and bleedva. Alex, you have an echo and it's bugging the shit out of me. The tables have turned. And I do? M- yeah, m- yeah, Mr. Audio has an echo. Like, do. what the fuck? Why do you have an echo, Alex? Where's your microphone, Alex? Oh, it's at home. Yeah, you told me to like travel with this thing. Oops, dog ate my homework. Uh, yeah. I traveled with mine. Yeah. I, uh, I forgot. So you can buy a portable mic and headphones. Why are you such a fucking bag of Guys, shit? Guys, every week this thing gets published. <laughs> this cabbage. We all have our crosses to bear. I love it. Yeah. All right. That's it. See you. Bye.